Hello, freaks, and welcome to Radical Research. That's Thought Industries Songs for Insects from the album of the same name from 1992. And this is Radical Research, episode 32. Uh, Hunter, I believe we have an anniversary in the family that you wanted to mention. Yeah, I'd like to celebrate the 30th anniversary of Obituary's iconic debut, Slowly We Rot, which was recorded on an eight track by a bunch of uh, redneck Florida Celtic frost loving dudes. You left out the word stoner, but, you know. Uh, well, yeah, they like they uh, <laughs> anecdotally enjoyed marijuana. <laughs> so there's a lot, you know, I mean, like, you see sort of anniversary posts by fans almost every day on, on this that this album, that album, the other album. What makes that one so special for you? I, it's, you know, I probably know that answer, but I, I want to hear it. I mean, it's just so, it's so raw. It's got an urgency about it and a youthfulness about it. Um I mean, you know, like everyone else, I suppose, I love the fact that there aren't actually lyrics um, and that the vocals are just a true sort of artistic expression, like a like a very, very abstract form of expression. Um, because, I mean, music is an abstract art form anyway. It's sort of disembodied. And to actually remove words from it, it's, it's basically just like a piece of complete sound. And I, I, and I love the sound of it, too. And I mentioned that it was recorded on 8-track because it's such a marvelously thick production, too. It's, just, a- it's sort of singular in the Florida death metal pantheon, I think. 
it, it, yeah, it's everything it needs to be for one. And um, right down, I mean, I love the cover. I love the back cover. I mean, like everything about that album oh, yeah, is just exactly as it should be. Kind of having, you know, followed death metal in its infancy, you know, there was Possessed, I guess, you know, it's easy to call them one of the first or the first. Uh, and then, you know, death took that to another level. I remember when Slowly came out and thinking, okay, that's now the next level. That's that third tier of what at the time was 80s death metal. Um, sure. And, and it's, it was so just so heavy, so obscenely heavy. It, 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 in a way, it hasn't been topped only because that was 1989. You know, this is 2019. Much harder to have that kind of impact now. I don't think you could have that kind of impact now. Not with that kind of music and not with that no. exact style, because it obviously it's been done now for it's 30 years. Done, yeah. Um, yeah. I, I, and I maintain that they never bested it. You know, a lot of people will say, oh, Cause of Death's better. It's got James Murphy. It's more technically superior, but hogwash. Hog oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. to the wash. <laughs> Take the hog and wash it. <laughs> yeah. Because that's just gobbledygook. You got to get that pig clean, boy. Slowly rot is the best. It is, totally. Totally agree. The very essence. And, and I, I like the first four to varying degrees, but yeah, they never tops slowly. Yeah. So happy birthday, slowly we rot. You're looking beautiful. <laughs> Tonight we're sampling three songs from each of Thought Industries' five albums. This is a band that obviously Hunter and I both love very much for very different reasons. And, uh, you know, even going out throughout their discography, there's just such variation there from point A to point Z. The band originated in Kalamazoo, Michigan, originally formed as a cover band called Fair Warning. Um, you can probably guess where they got the inspiration from for that name. And Van Halen was indeed uh, an inspiration on a few of the guys. Uh, they moved on to the name Desecrator, and they released a really cool demo of progressive thrash in 1988 and finally ended up as Thought Industry. Did you ever hear that Desecrator demo? No. It's, it's good. You'd recognize it as super early Thought Industry, not quite as developed uh, but you know, de definitely interesting stuff. The Thought Industry demo from 1990 kind of took that prog thrash thing that Desecrator was doing, took it several steps further into really some very eclectic realms. Stuff that not that many bands were doing uh, then with thrash, or even now, quite honestly. Um, Seriously. That tape is infamous for being championed by Jason Newstead, uh, formerly of Flotsam and Jetsam, later in Voivod, but at the time, uh, he was in Metallica. And Newstead brought the demo to the attention of Metal Blade Records, and the rest is history. They ended up releasing all five of their albums on Metal Blade, even the last couple that were decidedly outside of the metal realm. Yeah, and I mean, Metal Blade was thinking outside of the box already, and I think that um, that Brian Slagle definitely had sort of a, an ability to forecast success to some degree. Like, he signed Goo Goo Dolls, for instance, who became probably one of the most popular rock bands of the mid-90s. And yeah, like, it's it's interesting, and it sort of speaks to the acceptance of the uh, inclusivity of Metal Blade that... Thought Industry was able to spend their entire career with them. Yeah. Because there's a huge um, stylistic gulf between uh, Songs for Insects and Shortwave on a Cold Day. As well uh, Which here. is essentially yeah. like a you know modern art rock record in a lot of ways. For sure. Let's let's just get it right out of the bag now. That's our favorite Thought Industry album is the, is the fifth and final Shortwave on a Cold Day. Uh, what about Mr. Walton? What is his favorite? Well, let's talk about Mr. Walton a second. I don't know what Mr. Walton's favorite is. Um, he didn't give me a lot of biography on his fandom of thought industry, but 
Jason, for this episode, all 15 snippets you're going to hear tonight uh, were selected by our comrade and fellow Paroxysm fan, Jason. In case you don't know, he's also known for Agaloc, uh, Karata. Uh, he does a cool podcast called I Hate Music and uh, does a variety of other things. He was actually, I think he headed up that great self-spiller uh, project that was international and weird as fuck. He did. Uh, it was really cool. Yeah, he, he's a vanguard of weird art, basically, and a uh, stand-up guy who... who Loves thought industry as much as we do. He's also been uh, an early supporter of radical research. And, um, you know, we just thought, well, he can probably pick the snippets better than we can. So let's go ahead and, and um, have him curate this episode. Everything you hear tonight was chosen and snippeted by Mr. Walton. Thank you very much, Mr. Walton. But I don't know his favorite album, actually. Um, would have been good to know that. Maybe we'll get that for the show notes and kind of share that with everybody. That's probably a really good idea, huh? Cool. Yeah, let's listen to Ballerina from Songs for Insects. first album songs for insects um and i think you hear um some things that sort of characterize the early period of this band uh, for instance the ability to hold like four or five competing but somehow complementary ideas together at the same time um this wide wide mesh of influences that they don't 
they don't necessarily hop from one to the other, but instead they sort of stack them onto each other. Um, and I've always found that a, to be a really fascinating approach um, and, and sort of unique to them. Um, I also hear talking about um, multiple genres and juxtapositions and superimpositions and all sort of other impositions. I hear the residue of the first Mr. Bungle record in that track. Mm, okay. Basically some of the vocals. Yeah, I, I bet those guys were probably tuned into what Bungle was doing, probably on the demos, because you know the Bungle album only predated Songs for Insects by one year. One year. Yeah. But um, you know Bungle had been around in tape trading circles, and you know these guys were part of that whole thing. So surely their ear was to the ground in terms of uh, Mr. Bungle. Really good point in terms of the melted thing. Everything seems melted together. Like take that influence, this one over here, and that one down there, and melt it rather than like. Yeah, go from like A to B to C with it, right? right. Yeah, it wasn't right. so much a chain as a sort of a melted chain, you know what I mean? It just was yeah. Like, yeah, a big lump. Really good point there. And, and and you also bring up Bungle. I mean, it's for me, in this era especially for Thawne Industry, it's very difficult to spot the influences, right? Oh, yeah. I mean, and that's probably because everything is so sort of jammed together. So let's take the bass. It's probably Metallica and Megadeth and, you know, some other thrash. Because clearly... Throughout songs for insects, pace is pretty rapid. Oh yeah, um, you know the, the, maybe the, some uh, some Mordred too. Mordred's a really good call. Probably yeah. I mean, even the slapping that Brent Oberlin's doing on the bass recalls that funk influence that came into the late '80s. Uh, mm-hmm. Whether you're playing hardcore or metal or whatever. But again, you know, it's just like it's fun to play spot the influences because you don't really know. I mean, you know, yeah, you could dig and, and read some interviews and all that. But the one influence that I think I hear throughout their entire discography, maybe the only one I hear throughout the entire discography, because as we know, you know, they change so much from uh, album one to album five. But I hear XTC. Wow. Yeah. Because even on Songs for yeah. Insects, they're doing a lot of stuff with acoustic guitar. And XTC did a lot of that. Obviously, it's in a different context for Thought Industry. But that's there. I also think maybe it's just the vocal aspect. I think Brent's vocals tend to sound like XTC's. Um, And uh, I don't know. I'm not sure if that's an influence on them, but I'm willing to wager that it is. No, it's a great call. And and you're probably right. Um, I I mean, these guys obviously have very... Uh, you know, broad listening tastes. Sure. And I, know, I, in, in addition to what they're willing to put into the music itself. Totally, yeah. Great points. And like, they also had kind of broad artistic tastes as well. You, you yes. can tell a lot about a musician or a band from the thanks list. And uh, if you look at drummer Dustin Donaldson's list of thanks from the Songs for Insects album, uh, it's really revealing. He thanks okay. Salvador Dali, H.R. Giger, uh, in quotes, non-commercial filmmakers, so just underground film, I suppose, independent <laughs> film, uh, Neil Gaiman, uh, the Beatles, Van Halen, and Joel Peter Whitkin, the photographer, amongst others. And throughout the album's lyric sheet, you know, we get quotes from Shakespeare, Lord Byron, Wordsworth, among others, and pretty heady stuff. Yeah, they were um, they were sort of unashamed of their ambitions, and that's probably one of the things that I always loved about them. And, and you you mentioned Dolly. Dolly's artwork adorns the cover. And we'll talk about yeah. yeah. We'll talk about that because it's it's on their second album cover. Well, I think once we get there, we'll maybe dissect that just a little bit more. So, speaking of lofty ambitions, the the song title for the the piece that we're about to play is indicative of a band um, that is inclined toward the the artistic, toward the heady, uh, the the rarefied. So, without further ado, this is another song from their first album, Songs for Insects. Latin. 
Yeah, I think most of Songs for Insects, you know, is in the metal realm, but that song, just about not at all. No, no, it has almost sort of a, like a British, um, you know, like mid-century British folk tint to it. That's why the XTC thing still applies, yeah. too. I'm hearing that all over that, because they were this punk but not punk band, and then Thought Industry was like this metal but not metal band, right? They, they, right. they had that root, but they just... They really hardly ever fell into that categorization. It was always pretty defiant, actually. And that song, by the way, was called Alexander versus the Puzzle. Yeah. Yeah. This is another band, uh, you know, Radical Research approved awesome song titles. Yes. <laughs> and, and, and you're right, though. They, there is a defiant attitude toward their metal. It's like a band that loves metal but also is, is interested in challenging its, its norms uh, as it is conforming to them. Yeah. What about uh, a couple other favorites to pinpoint from this album before we move on? Just to kind of name them for anybody that might be wanting to check more out if they're not already convinced. The Chalice Vermilion. Yeah, that's that's. It's, uh, it's one of the longer ones on the album, and, and yeah, um, also uh, Blistered Text and Bleeding Pins. I'm quite into that one. You're into the song title for sure. <laughs> I am absolutely. Into the song. <laughs> That song could suck, and I'd be like, it's pretty good. Yeah. <laughs> no, great song. I, I really love the opener, Third Eye, and that's about as metal as they get, too. That thing has a lot of impact for me. And I, I guess because it was the first time I'd heard them, you know, picked up this album kind of on a whim. Just, you know, it was Metal Blade, looked weird, had a Dali yep. artwork on the yep. cover. Like, yeah, I'm in. <laughs> right? Yeah, that, that, was my, uh, that was my way in, too. And I have to say, it took a couple of years. I, when I first heard it, I was pretty young i was probably 13 and i i don't think i was quite up for the challenge of thought industry at the time. <laughs> right right well this album's definitely a challenge too because i don't as, as great as it is I, I don't think it's perfect i think they lose their way every now and then on some of the arrangements and um, it doesn't always hold together but you know for the most part you know the spirit is always there and it's a long album yeah um, they were they um, were they did that probably too long Honestly, I was going to ask that. Is this too long at 64 minutes? Probably. Yeah. I mean, how many albums aren't too long at 64 minutes? Yeah. Yeah. Very few. I mean, very few bands that can sustain quality album over that length. We've mentioned the ones that can before, but I, if anybody is curious, we we think it's Mars Volta and Tool. There are others I'm either forgetting or just choosing not to say, but like Mars Volta and Tool are probably the two that that come to mind first for me. Me too, man. Yeah, okay. Imagine that. Oh, I know. <laughs> Proudly. So we move on to the second album. Also featured a Dali album cover. This album was called, get this, Mods Carve the Pig, colon, Assassins, Toads, and God's Flesh. Um, <laughs> I'm not sure if that's a case of them like kind of necroticism, discanting the insalubrious, where they could, just couldn't decide on the name. Uh, we had one of those last episode, Quiet Zone, The Pleasure Dome. Oh, yeah, that's true. That's yeah. true. But, uh, yeah, who knows? It's a, it's a great long name. It brings up all kinds of images, uh, all of them surreal. Yeah, like I said, it featured cover art by Dali. This one featured, Mods featured the painting Apotheosis of Homer. That was from 45 um, for Dali. Uh, Songs for Insects features the way more popular painting, um, Soft Construction with Boiled Beans from 36. Nice. I'm a fan of Dali, and I looked at a lot of his stuff and had some of his books, and I don't think I'd ever seen... Uh, the one that they used for Mods Carve the Pig before it came out on this album. Uh, it's just not right. one of his most popular for some reason, but I think it's utterly fantastic. Oh, it's amazing. I, yeah, it's in some ways even better. Yeah, and for for me, like, well, all his stuff's pretty great, uh, but, you know, mid to late 40s, Dali is 
just about as good as it gets. Yeah, he's dialed in. Yeah. Songs There's some for... William Blake overtones in this painting, too, to me. Mm, interesting. Point those out. I mean, just sort of like the, the weird mysticism. Some of the color choices, too. All the tones are sort of muted in this. Mm. And I think we tend to think of Dali as um, very vivid and hallucinatory. Everything is sort of sepia-toned in this. I mean, you get reds and shades of blue, but, I mean, everything is, like, dominated by this you know, slate gray, um, muted kind of color. Kind of shades of white or shades of light gray. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, yeah it's really interesting. I, I always see this cricket bat being used as a crutch. I don't know if that's what that is. Obviously, he used crutches yeah. a lot in his work. Yeah, excellent choice of Carver art if you're going to go for it. I have no idea if they got permission. Uh, mods featured the same lineup as the debut. I guess what we can call the classic lineup. We mentioned Brett Oberlin before. Uh, he was on bass and vocals. Uh, Dustin Donaldson, we mentioned, he's on drums. And the guitarist, Christopher Simmons, uh, also known as Christopher Lee, and Paul Enzio on guitar. And um, this would be the last time they were that quartet. Mods Carve the Pig is a lot more blunt in its aggression. Oh, isn't it? much. Yeah. Much. Okay. It's a, yeah, it's a, it's a roundly more aggressive record. Yeah. Um, the songs are condensed, the arrangements are pared down, and yeah, it's just a, it's a fierier record. Um, and it, it has the same kind of eclecticism as Songs for Insects, but it's presented in a much more oblique and less obvious way to, to me. And it, it's, it's a harder record to love than Songs for Insects, which again is not a perfect record, but this one. This one's a challenge. This one was a slower grower for me. I'll, I'll give you yeah, that. Yeah, certainly.
was Horsepowered, the opening song on Thought Industries' second album, Mods Carved the Pig. The, the beginning of that song, honestly, like, tells me more about, like, the Midwestern noise rock tradition mm. than it does anything metal. Completely, yes. Yep. yep. I'm just unhinged. I mean, it could have been on Skin Graft or Amphetamine Reptile. You know, any any number of those labels. It's so Minneapolis. It's so Chicago. It's yep. so Kalamazoo. But it's, yeah, it's Chicago and Minneapolis via Kalamazoo. Yep, love it. But then obviously uh, that song <laughs> descends into stranger, more surrealistic territory after that, including a uh, sort of funk metal break. It's pretty awesome, actually. I don't know that I've ever, like, said the words funk metal and awesome <laughs> so close together. <laughs> Well, I mean, you know, somebody like Faith No More did it in a little more of a direct way. It was pretty blatant. Uh, I think that part in Horsepower just still stays weird, and it just kind of stays under the, the surface it's, a little bit. It's not it's not giving itself up completely, and it's also not this kind of gratuitous funk. And it's more Primus than it is, yeah, gratuitous funk. Primus is a really good call there. I, You know, my... My head will always go to like, oh, it's Bungle, just because they put the stamp and closed the door on funk metal all in one with that first album. I mean, they really, sure. they really did. There's no other album that incorporated that sort of playing into that heavy type of metallic music with that kind of authority. It just, it right. just hasn't happened before or since. Right. But so, you know, my my head goes there. But that's a little unfair to Thought Industry, who I think probably more just shared a lot of similar influences as the guys in Bungle, really. Um, and speaking of meshes of influences, probably a good time to point out that this album came out in 1993. Mm. And probably the only thing to be mentioned more on this podcast than Boy Bot. <laughs> I, th I think you're probably right. Yeah, you know, we started out with a lot of flute mentions. I don't know how that happened. But... I'm, at, I'm glad that we gravitated away from flute. Nothing against the flute, people. No, uh, no, no, no. But yeah, you're right, you're right. I think Voivod and 93 are the, are, the, are the top mentioned words, terms on this thing. Also, along with Thought Industries sound, their look was never really the expected metal thing. And in fact, I think Dustin Donaldson was certainly the first musician in any metal band that I'd ever seen even one as weird as Thought Industry that wore a scrunchie in his hair. <laughs> I mean, I remember like were, in, yeah. in 93 especially, like I was like, oh, that guy's pretty wild, man. And now it just seems like, you know, whatever. Like, that's cool. <laughs> Nobody would bat a lash at a scrunchie. Not days. anymore, but yeah. back then they were definitely defying all the conventions. And there were eyeglasses. There, there, there were eyeglasses in the mix. Yeah, there were Scrabble boards in this era. Gotta love them. It happens all the time Honestly, I thought I loved you Too bad you're so damn late Scale me with the chance to die by Before I would call friends I guess it's a lovely trick
pretty tasty little riff coming out of there, right? Absolutely. And, you know, what, we've kind of focused on the weirdness of this band, but one thing we have not talked about is Brent Oberlin's very keen ear for hooks. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. Definitely. And, and I mean, you know, like, the, the last couple albums, particularly Shortwave, um, are almost characterized by those vocal hooks. But it's one of the things that makes the early thought industry so satisfying is you get all this madness, but then you get these, you know, sort of like little periods of refuge where Brent Oberlin throws you a, a you know, a, a crumb and uh, you can actually sort of sit there and for as long as they're able to actually focus on one idea <laughs> um, and, and, and enjoy it. That's the beauty of this kind of material, though. I think if you look at stuff that's, you know, considered, you know, let's just use the term weird in a generic sense uh, or challenging or experimental or whatever. You know, I think it's always better when you do get something that you can hang on to because it kind of throws into relief all that weird stuff that actually starts happening and, you know, kind of throws you asunder and, you know, you're in that weird mix again. So, you know, these hooks kind yeah. of just help. They're, they're like an anchor. For sure. It makes the weirdness even more satisfying. This is Boyle. I really like Boyle, and I think for the first time, maybe listening to it in this context and just in snippet form, I heard a bit of early Mind Over 4. Like, that could have been on the Out Here album, maybe. Yeah. I wonder if those guys were peers, if they wrote to each other, if they knew each other, you know, if there was a bit of a mutual influence. I have no idea. I mean, they certainly seem like kindred spirits. And um, Mind Over 4 toured that area. I I don't think it's a stretch at all there's a song on this album that we're not going to listen to it's called to build a better bulldozer uh, which i love uh well you know i don't generally like instrumental music 
But I oh, love that what? song. What? <laughs> Were you being sarcastic? I'm Jeff. I've spent most of my time in an instrumental band. I realize that. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> Yes. <laughs> you know, you said it with such passion. I was like, oh, maybe you've turned a new leaf. No. Okay. Yeah, yeah we're getting a singer. <laughs> now, to you build know, a, yeah, but how good is to build a better bulldozer? Oh, That's fantastic. That, yeah, they really, they didn't do a lot of instrumentals. In fact, I, is this the only one on the, on the, the five album? Yeah, that I can think of, yeah. You know, for, uh, I mean, we've called them a metal band. We've called them a not metal band. But at any rate, you don't find a lot of rock bands that put as much care into their lyrics as they do their music. Yeah. Um, but that's definitely something that you encounter with thought industry. Absolutely. Um, and so I, I, I would I would think that that would probably account for the deficit of instrumental songs that you, you find on their albums. But when they did one, you know, Bulldozer was incredible. I mean, that's a high point of, right. of mods. That's a high point of their early years for me. Yeah, I, I would agree with that. And it kind of capped their early years, and we're going to move on. But the one thing I wanted to say about this era was um, it was around this time that I saw them open for Typo Negative. And this was back on Typo's Bloody Kisses tour when Bloody Kisses wasn't even that big yet. It had not gone gold, and it had not – I don't think it was an MTV sensation at all. Um, so it was a small crowd. It was a really cool treat to see those bands at what I kind of think is a certain peak for them. You know, we, we have said that the Fifth Thought Industry albums are favorite, but I have no idea if the live energy would have been there on that album. So I, I, it's probably I, I didn't, you know, I wasn't able to see them live in any of their eras, but I can't imagine that they would have had the same energy on the shortwave tour that they had. For they were great. They were great. And yet another reason, if listening to the albums isn't enough, you know, the live show kind of just this all proves that they were severely underrated and really underappreciated. Just not enough ears and eyes saw and heard them. Right. It just didn't happen, unfortunately. But um, that's why we do this, because we hope that uh, if there's one person out there that goes and snags all the all the thought industry records, probably cheaply on Discogs, then, you know, go for it. Yeah. I mean, you know, lightweights like Jason Newstead can't really push product. But man, me and you. <laughs> change the world. And if Jason Walton endorses, then that's certainly good for something. Come on. Good for, good for me, man. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, thanks again, Jason. It's, the spirit of Jason's uh, just floating in, the, in these rooms right now. Yes, it is. Remember last time when we stopped boring everyone about some dudes playing arranged noises for a few minutes and got to the sponsor bit? You know, your favorite part of the show. Well, it's that time again to tell you about Lamentations of the Flame Princess, the mind-bending and merciless tabletop role-playing game. And you can completely disregard last episode's sponsor message. Our new books aren't out yet, but they will be released next week, confirmed. They'll have a new printing of Death, Frost, Doom. They've got two adventure compilations, including Adventure Anthology Death, where they reprinted their old adventure, Fuck for Satan, among others. You heard that right. Plus Adventure Anthology, Fire, for the best starting adventures for LOTFP. And rest assured, Adventure Anthology Blood will be published in the future. No rest for the wicked. A soft cover edition of the random esoteric creature generator for classic fantasy role-playing games and their modern simulacra. And a reprint of World of the Lost, a tale of high technologies and dinosaurs in 17th century Africa. Because postage from Finland is the biggest son of a bitch... And because all this new stuff is taking up so much space around the LOTFP HQ, 
We have a cool deal for you. Through the end of June 2019, when you order with track shipping from the LOTFP web store, you will get a free LOTFP tote bag and a free LOTFP t-shirt. Just leave a comment with the order with your t-shirt size and that you heard about your offer here. www.lotfp.com That's www.lotfp.com for all your weird, horror, and fantasy role-playing needs. Oh! Bonus! Mm. LOTFP will be at the UK Games Expo in Birmingham, England this coming weekend. So for all you Birmingham area radical researchers who listen immediately upon new episodes dropping, be there. We'll have all the new books and discounts out the ass. We'll have the link to the UK Games Expo on our show notes. Please check them out. And seriously, if you're in Birmingham, you have to check this out because that's the birthplace of metal and Jim's going to be there. So I'd I'd be there if I was anywhere close to that, but uh, unfortunately we're not. You going to Birmingham then? International Dateline and such, man. (laughs) And such. And what fourth? And what fourth? So we get to uh, the third album. Now, this will will be interesting. It it was called Outer Space is Just a Martini Away. I don't know about you, Hunter. I think we've talked about it very briefly, but I I remember for me when this album came out, I, I thought that I had lost interest really quickly. This is a textbook transitional album. Yes. Um, it, it's capital a, it's an, capital it's almost, T, baby. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> no, really, it, it is. Yeah. But yeah. it's it's really an album that almost sounds uneasy in its own skin because it, it's holding these sort of two competing identities at the same time. You have a band that is still sort of rooted in its early work, but almost forecasting, you know, its later years. But it doesn't know how to reconcile the two. Totally true. You know, and I, again, I, you know, we can't say that Jason agrees with us on this. He may very much disagree. So we hope to not misrepresent his picks. But, you know, I, I do think this is not only textbook transitional. And I like and even love a lot of what are considered transitional albums. I don't think this is one that you can totally love. I, I really appreciate it, though, because it's just standing so weirdly between these two super strong poles, right? The, the right. metal slash Dali thought industry and with that lineup, that has to be said, and then Black Umbrella and Short Wave, which are very strong albums, uh, but very much not those first two. This is just trying to find a place in the middle of those. Pretty much yeah, exact, it's, it's, exactly it's, what uh, you just said, but I'm just rephrasing it. <laughs> like a sort of questing spirit to this album you know it's like yeah it's sort of like the you know if you had two destinate if you had a, a starting point and a destination you have to travel between the two and this is the sound of thought industry going from coast to coast uh, and, and some of it for me is sonic it's it's the aesthetic it's the fact that they've really stripped down the guitars uh and the aggression and it's becoming something more in the alt-rock world. Never a bad thing for me either, necessarily. We are going to listen to a song called Watercolor Grey, one of the best songs in this album. Uh, I'm glad Jason picked it. And this will also give us a good sense of what they were doing at this time in 1996. Lisa Kia 
That's watercolor gray. The British spelling of watercolor is used, which I always found kind of curious. The color has the U in there. Um, right. Is that a deliberate betrayal of influences, maybe? Yeah, probably. British. Maybe, uh, yeah, 4 AD. I hear 4 AD. Months. Yeah, pick pick any sort of more accessible, laid-back post-punk thing you want to imagine. Sure. Kind of there. Yeah, I just, I, I wonder. It's an interesting choice. Maybe it's just a misspelling. Somebody at Metal Blade just fucked it up. <laughs> that doesn't look right. What's that you? <laughs> How are you with this album now, though? Has it changed since you heard it then? Because for me, it really has. I, I appreciate it quite a bit more than I did. Yeah, I do, too. Yeah, I do, too. That's I, that's me with a lot of albums. Um, you know, I was thinking about um, Failure's Fantastic Planet. Yeah. I didn't love it when it came out. Also yeah. a 96 record. Okay. Um, and, you know, it's like, I mean, it's a really, really important record for me now. Um, but, I, I mean, I think I've, I've grown as a listener, and, you know, I know, I, I guess I'm more assured in what I like and what I want to hear. And that, yeah, that definitely sort of trickled down this album. I like, I like this album a lot more now than I did when it came out. Yeah, same. And I, I was going to mention the same thing you did, too, in terms of, like, listening to a wider range of things now, which can help you appreciate an album like this now, right? As opposed to back then, where we were a little narrower, because we just didn't have the depth of experience, maybe, as listeners. Right. Um, I certainly didn't, and I wasn't ready for this then. I just simply wasn't. But, you know, in, in the interim... What, 20, yeah, 23 years. years. Yeah, 23 years. Yeah, yeah it's, it's, uh, there's been a lot of stuff that's come through my transom, as David St. Hubbins says, um, yeah. that, uh, that, you know, makes this make a little more sense. So, anyway, uh, let's listen to a couple more just in a row, just to get a good feel for this album before we move on. This is Jack Frost Jr. and The Squid.
there you go. Outer space is just a martini away. I wonder if some of my disappointment was just the fact that they didn't have a Dali on the cover this time. It was kind of a kind of a poorly it, rendered cover of. You it's know, a like fifty sci-fi kind of. Fifty sci-fi. Well, it, it looks fifty sci-fi because the rendering is so bad. You know, um, yeah. everything's just kind of out of perspective, and you know, it just looks kind of cheap and thrown together. But hey, you know, they didn't ask me, and I'm not a graphic artist anyway, so fuck it. Again, great lyrics and imagery on this album. Kind of links back to what the early stuff established. I mean, you have song titles like uh, Atomic Stroller Helps None, <laughs> which is pretty great. <laughs> and uh, maybe my favorite, Dante Dangling from a Noose. Per- particularly memorable, that one. Yeah, for sure. Um, and then we get Black Umbrella, album number four. Mm-hmm. Very compelling album cover for one. Just kind of this dark... Auburn, burnt Auburn figure, maybe jogging or running into more darkness. Just not really all that revealing. Um, it's pretty uh, consistent with the music on the album, I it, would say. Yeah, this this music, I mean, for one, this succeeds where Outer Space merely tried. I, I, think, I think Black Umbrella just nails exactly what Outer Space was trying to do. Right. Uh, this has become a real favorite of mine. I, I didn't love it at first, but I've I've really come around. Um, and I think the picks that Jason made are all all three just excellent. But yeah, that's that's a good point you make about the cover. Do you want to go into that some more? I it just like for it's the first time that we have heard thought industry almost in monochrome. Like for me, this is their pity love. Um, this wow. is the first time that they really focused in on a mood and sustained it throughout an entire album almost. Definitely. Yeah, Black Umbrella, man. Such a great sustained atmosphere all the way through. Really excellent album. 13 songs. Just about perfect. Not even too long. I, I don't remember how long it is, but it never feels it doesn't. too long for me. We're going to listen to bits of Pink Dumbo, December 10th, and Earwig all at once. We hope you're blown away. So I know your patience.
Black Umbrella also does something throughout the album that I that I feel like is more autobiographical than they had ever done or ever attempted. You just don't hear that too much in the first three albums. Probably not at all in the first two, at least not in a very obvious way. I think in The Squid, which we heard earlier from Outer Space, you get some of that. But on Black Umbrella, you get My Famous Mistake, you get December 10th, you get 24 Hours Ago, I Could Breathe, Slash, December 11th. I mean, there's something going on there. I presume something tough that Brent went through. There's usually alcohol somewhere there. There's a like sort of confessional sort of pain. Yeah. Uh, in Black Umbrella. Yeah. And, 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 you know, and I don't know if he's speaking through a character or not, but whether or not he is like, you really sense 
the turmoil of that character. But Earwig, though, that stuff we just heard, um, it, it's a really curious moment there where they get into something that I think for lack of for lack of a frame of reference, I, I'm hearing like Euro metal meets Euro pop synth or something there. It's just, or and, and it also reminded me of something that you might have heard somewhere on a Dawnbringer record. Yeah, I can, I totally hear that. Yeah, but it's but I mean, hard to pinpoint. That Euro metal thing too. That, yeah. That Chris carries in his DNA. Sure. Um, and, and I was reminded, and I've never thought about this before listening to it just now, there's a band called Advantage that had an album um, called Elf Titled, mm-hmm. um, and it's a collection of Nintendo covers. You've played that for and, me, and I think that predated all that Nintendo stuff, right? In terms of like it, rock bands doing it. Yeah, and, and it, it's also better than any of those. Okay, it's like I mean, it, it, honestly, if it if you didn't know the source material, it wouldn't matter. It would still be really good. Yeah, um, they, they just do a really great job with it. But I was thinking, like, these guys probably came up during the era of Nintendo and listened to the Metroid soundtrack and Double Dragon and Contra. Like, maybe carry some of that with them, too. Like, I, I, it, I don't know. It, the, it resonated with me. Yeah, I think that's an interesting passage and a really good song. I mean, Earwig is pretty great throughout. It, and and it's, it's the band putting something completely brand new in a song on their fourth album who've already been reinvented and are crystallizing sort of that last moment of their sound. And just, you know, it's it felt to me like they were still really curious listeners and artists and uh, still curious performers and writers. Like they just, you know, kind of wanted to keep doing things that were fresh, things that excited them. Because as, as, as you say, you know, there's a monochromatic element to Black Umbrella, but it's, you know, every now and then we'll get that moment in Earwig right. that kind of announces something a little bit different. And that's the great thing about thought industry is that their their sense of of evolution and exploration is completely preserved because you, you get this spectrum from songs for insects to uh, shortwave and a cold day, um, and it's this you know it's this line from A to B, and they never continued long enough to backpedal. Yeah, you never got that like reunion record 15 years later that was like, we're going back to Songs for Insects. We're going back to our roots. You know, you never got that. They did actually reunite. I, I don't recall the lineup, if it was the core four from the early days or not. It was in 2013 or 14 or something. They played a show in Michigan. but I, And I want to say, thankfully, they didn't record an album because Shortwave, as we're going to hear, was the ultimate cap. On one of the one of the best and most interesting evolutions of any band. So after Black Umbrella, yeah, they kept going down this road of this difficult to define rock sound. I guess it would have been dubbed alternative back then in the late '90s, early 2000s. And they released their what was to be their final album, Shortwave on a Cold Day. By this time, Brent Oberlin was the only original member. And I've heard this album talked about by fans as just about their favorite. We've already kind of said it's ours. Hard to deny that. However, it's 16 songs and it's 71 minutes. Does that bother you about it at all? Not this album, no. Really? So this this one holds together for you. You can listen to the whole thing. Yep. Okay. For me, it becomes a bit of a blur in the middle because there's just so much to take in. It starts to kind of you know meld together. 
the thing about it that makes it good is there's nothing bad on it. Well, I, and I, it probably felt like that to me at a certain point, but I think over time I've sort of learned how to manage it or at least manage my journey through it. Right. Um, and so, so now, oh yeah, no, I, I can take it in as a full listen. And, and you're right. It's like, there's nothing bad on it. Well, that's just it. It's, you know, you can, you can drop a laser down on any point at any point and, and get a great song. You know, it's, it's a wealth of amazing material, a surfeit of good material and like, well, not just good, but great. I know that uh, Jason had told me in, in an email when he sent the songs that this was so hard to do, but you know, welcome to our world. Cause we, we try to do this every episode. It's usually pretty difficult to nail down just a few things from some of these greats who have a multitude of, of moments. Right. Sure. But yeah, shortwave and a cold day. Like, how how can we really describe it? Well, why is it better than Black Umbrella? Why is it the ultimate thought industry? And and you know, like I said, Brent's the only original member now, but it's still got this thing, this kind of like undiminished, unbroken line from the first album in a way. The songwriting is more dialed in than it's ever been. Yeah. Um, it's texturally. And production-wise, just a gorgeous listen. I wanted to mention the production because for me, that's, of course, as, as much as it is the songwriting and the performance, the production makes it stand out from any other thought industry because I don't think they ever nailed a production in this way. I think they always had an excellent album. They always had uh, really cool ideas, you know, powerful performances, but just never got the production right. And suddenly you're met with like, everything firing on every cylinder that it should on this album. It'd be like, yeah, it'd be like if Manila Road made like four albums and then on album five, they met Alan Parsons and he was like, let me produce your record. <laughs> you know what I'm saying? Like, yeah, yeah, yeah. You're yeah. right. I mean, they never had like that production, but this album is so like richly textured. It's so visual. It's so beautiful. Speaking of visual, I have to mention the cover art, man. The, I love this cover. It's it, it's a record that sounds like it looks. We've mentioned that before, and those like those are sometimes the best ones because if the if the work itself is good, and then you get the artwork to match it, that's the best experience. Because I, when I sit down and listen to it, I'm kind of in that blizzard, right? Right. You know, you see this blizzard. It doesn't look like it's ever going to end, but yet it looks really oppressive. But it, it's also beautiful, and I, I think that's partly. The experience of the album because after 71 minutes i mean you're you know you're pretty exhausted right sure <laughs> we're gonna listen to three bits that jason picked out and uh, you know as he did with black umbrella he nailed three of our very 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 favorites from this album satan in the gift shop measure of our miles and lovers in oh. flames measure of our miles is maybe my favorite yeah I've, I've come out of a listen thinking that same thing too We'll see how it goes. I do. I do want to mention one song title. Yeah. That I because. Wait, hold on. Let I me let me maybe guess. Talk about the song title. Don't tell me what it is, and then I'll try to guess. Can we, can we um, play a little game? Yeah, sure. Is that going to work? It's cosmic. It's cosmic. Interstellar Constantly. fix two thousand two thousand fifty six. Nope. Uh, oh, the waitress in the bar orbiting Io. Correct. Guess what she's serving? <laughs> Martinis. <laughs> Ha 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 
watch you cry Everybody likes to watch you cry Everybody likes to watch you cry So what? It's done I'll cover my grandfather's spine And turn it into a boat Show up the holes with my hands And see if the vessel will float Stare it into the waves With the devil at the rudder I'll carve out my grandfather's spine And turn it into a boat So we talked a little bit about Brent's excellent lyrics And we haven't really quoted any but And we don't really need to But I love the lyric in Lovers in Flames. I'll carve up my grandfather's spine and turn it into a boat. <laughs> Man. Talk about imagery. I mean, my, my, I don't think my granddad's spine was big enough for that. <laughs> probably many granddads. but um, Yes. Well, pretty awesome. Yeah, I think that's probably uh, very complimentary to his grandfather, thinking he had the kind of spine you could carve into like maybe a Viking ship. Reminds me of another Midwestern band, uh, Last Crack with Mini Toboggan. Oh, man. Which is also a pretty great song. Probably my favorite Last Crack song. I think that, that thing's so theatrical, uh, puts such an image in your mind. Yeah, we'll, we'll get to them. Maybe uh, maybe around 74 or 75 episodes. <laughs> yes. <laughs> we, we, have a, we have a lot to do here. Um, so where might they have gone after Shortwave? I mean, it's just... I don't know because it just seemed like a logical endpoint of their evolution. I actually think that the next step would have been lateral. Me too. Me um, too. I'm glad you said that because, I, I, and I think they would have lost some of their magic because I, you know, for me, I never like when a band finds who they think they are because then they just start parading that same album out, album after album after album, year right, after year after right. year. Right. Um, it's just not interesting, but that's happened to many bands, some good, some, many, many great bands. Yeah. Yeah. And, and some bad who just were looking for something, found it just, I mean, Amon Amarth is not a band I love, but I think they found themselves early on and they just have kept repeating the same album over and over and over and over and over. Um, what little I hear of it, but I, I, I'm interested enough to like, just check out a few samples, every album. And I'm like, Wow. You, you really got to be into that sound to just... They're a, they're a factory. They're like the ACDC of... I, I don't know. What are they? Epic pagan Viking metal? Um, I yeah. <laughs> anyway, back to Thought Industry. I feel like Fine. they could have gotten stuck in that loop. But then again, the spirit of the band was never that. So who knows? Um, it's all conjecture. Interesting to note that Dustin Donaldson left after the second album, but uh, formed a band called I Am Spoonbender, who had a degree of success uh, in other realms. Uh, Christopher Simmons also had a degree of success as a player and producer. And we have Shortwave on a Cold Day, which I think Brett Oberlin should be so, so proud of until the end of his days. I mean, what an incredible album. It's one of my favorite albums of the decade. Yeah. Uh, That came out what? 2001. 2001. Yep. We haven't heard from them since. But what a great uh, note to end on. As ever, thank you so much for listening, responding, liking on Facebook, all that good stuff. You know where to reach us. You know where to find us. If you don't, get a thing called Google and a computer and you'll figure it out. Next episode, episode 33, we're going to look at a few 
bad productions. Bad, of course, is pejorative, but at the same time, we uh, we feel like a lot of productions that are considered bad are actually good. Uh, we're going to point to things like Black Sabbath, Born Again, Morbid Angels, Blessed Are the Sick, Dark Angels Leave Scars. Uh, at the same time, something like Possessed Beyond the Gates is irredeemably bad. What others can we think of, just off the cuff? I can think of some early Century Media albums, oh, like okay. Spear and Poltergeist. <laughs> yeah, but that's not... But I don't really like either of those bands, so... Right, right, right. Uh, we'll, uh, we'll, we'll figure it out. But it'll be fun to look at what are considered bad productions. What does that mean? How does that sound? Um, how does that hurt an album? And how it helps an album? Please be back with us for episode 33 of Radical Research. Good night. Good day. Okay, here, Hunter here. Um, oh, shoot. We got to do LOTFP at some point. I'm, I'm having so much fun. Oh, yeah, shit. I forgot about that. We'll just do it, and I'll insert it at some point. Okay, that's um, fine. That's what she said. Ha, 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 ha.